We are the Riverside chapter of the Messengers of Recovery. We have chapters in Southern California and Arizona. We're a bunch of guys that either rode with the devil or chased him. We're the kind of guys that if you saw us in a crowd, you would think that if he can get sober, then so can I. We decided to throw our chip into the hat and talk about our recovery in the hopes that you can learn from this podcast that you don't have to use or drink even if you want to. We are not A-A-N-A-C-A-S-A and no one is from the damn D-A. Once a week, we hope to bring you the message of recovery from speakers, panels, interviews, and sometimes just a meeting. If you'd like to find out more about us, go to our webpage, www.riversidechaptermor.com. There you can listen to the podcast, ask questions or comments in our forum section, browse our support recovery t-shirts, or just find out a little bit more about us. That's www.riversidechaptermor.com. Today is Saturday, June 26th. Speaking is Junkyard and Hollywood. I'm Jacob. I'm an alcoholic. Jacob. Uh, they call me Hollywood. I'm grateful to be sober, grateful to be in a meeting and podcast, so grateful to be able to talk to you guys a little bit. My sobriety date is January 13th of 2019. What happened, what it's like, and what it's like now. Grew up in San Diego, good family. I have uh, two sisters. I think my first sip of alcohol, I was eight years old. My mom drank wine growing up, which still does, and my dad drinks Duls, and I'd always used to sip sip my mom's wine and you know tell her how gross it was and you know I, I never really got into it you know at a super young age a little bit about myself I think I was seven years old I was sexually molested by a cousin and uh, I'm not telling you guys that for my for pity it just kind of ties in with my story drugs and alcohol are not my only addictions you know besides my sobriety I struggle with other stuff um, I'm here today to tell you that there is recovery in all, all aspects of life. I think my first blackout drunk, I was a freshman. Day of fires down in San Diego, and you know, all the schools shut down, and we all went down to the beach, and you know, probably six, seven hundred heads on the beach. And um, you know, I stole a, a fifth of fireball and went down to the beach with my buddies, and we killed that fifth in about five minutes. Just kind of started rolling down the hill from there. You know, everything you could drink or smoke, I was doing it. And it was the first time I ever really gotten drunk drunk. Uh, I smoked weed for about two years before that. I liked, uh, I liked the, the feeling of, of not being there, not being present. You know, they say the difference between a, a normie and an alcoholic is that when a normie takes a drink, they feel that buzz, they, they, they push it away. You know, alcoholic invites that in, and I definitely invited it. So freshman year, I got kicked out of high school, outside issue and um, went back to the same high school and, and got kicked out again sophomore year for, for getting uh, belligerently drunk again. Go through, went through high school smoking weed every day and, and I wasn't a big drinker, I was more of a pothead. I was doing a lot of um, uppers too, ecstasy, molly, you know, whatever I can get my hands on that made me feel good. Barely passed high school, barely graduated. At the age of 18, I got my, a DUI. Before that, I had a few MIPs, minor possessions. DUI kind of knocked me on my ass a little bit. Got in a, in a car accident and totaled my car on the freeway and, you know, did the whole routine, got arrested and was in the drunk tank and got out and went home and, you know, cried and told my parents I was sorry. And I was always sorry, 
you know, I, I kept doing what I did, but I was always sorry for it. You know, I just couldn't stop drinking, couldn't stop using. I was probably sober for a couple days, and then I felt better and kind of got my wits back and went out and drank again. Graduated high school and <clears throat> went into uh, to went into the carpenters union. I man, I was a shitty ass worker <laughs> for the first year. I joined the carpenters union in 2018 in October. I was 20, and right when I turned 21, I had been drinking in the bars. I had been drinking in the bar since I was 17. I got my fake ID, and I was I was in the bar since I was 17. So I knew how to I knew how to be in a bar, and and I was getting booze and going home and going to work and you know worked for my uncle for a few months and was going to work drunk and fucked up and coke and all that shit i joined the carpenters union and i moved up to corona i was just worthless you know just just coming in hungover if i came in at all late throwing up racking out lines in the porta potties doing all that shit i would get my check on a thursday i'd cash it and i'd go to rockefellers or sporties and I'd drink all Thursday night, barely maybe get up Friday morning for work, try to work through the day and go straight to the bar after work and drink probably for four hours and then drive to San Diego, blacked out drunk. And I did that every weekend for like a month. I don't know how I'm here right now. Uh, I'm, I'm definitely uh, lucky, blessed, because I should be dead a hundred times over. I think it was probably like five or six times my dad had found me. I was always honest with my parents. You know, I always told them where I was going or what I was doing. Um, I kind of opened up, up, opened up to them about my drug use a little bit. They, they don't know the whole extent. Now that I have a little bit of time under my belt, <laughs> I talk about it with them and they're like, are you fucking kidding me? Like all this shit, you know. I've never done heroin, but I have, you know, so like they know that shit now and, and uh, you know, just stuff like that. And so I always told him where I was at and what I was doing. And um, probably four or five times before I got into the rooms, um, I, was, I was blacked out with my keys, the ignition, uh, passed out in, in my front car sleeping. And, and my dad had to come find me and, and take me home. Wake up the next day, not knowing what was going on. And it's three in the morning and we got to go get my car. And I can't find my fucking keys or my wallet or my phone. And, you know, then I got to go to work for eight hours. And it's just, you know, miserable driving down to San Diego every weekend blacked out and you know they kind of they kind of knew it was time for me to get some help you know they they uh they love me and and they put up a lot with a lot of my bullshit and I've never been in a lot of fights but two out of three of them was with my dad I'm not proud of that but it has given us a relationship today that you know is stronger and you know we respect the fuck out of each other and I love that man so they sat me down after the you know fourth or fifth time that I was blacked out, and, and they sat me down, and they said, hey, you need to get some help, you know. We, we got a friend who, who runs a sober living in Oxnard. It's on the beach, and, uh, you know, we want you to go out there for 30 days. And honestly, I didn't want to get sober when I did. I knew I needed help. I knew I had a problem. I knew I was an alcoholic, but I was always proud of it. You know, I can out-drink anybody and, like, you know, just where's the party at? What's, what's, where's the drugs at? You know, I was always the supplier. I was always the guy with everything, and... You know, I, I would steal your wallet and help you find it. You know, I was kind of I was kind of an asshole and ruined a lot of relationships from, from drinking and using. And, you know, it was just time. You know, so I, I don't know what it was, uh, but something told me it was time, you know, just go. And I thought it would be this, you know, 
homeless people and, and, you know, dirty and just, you know, getting my shit stolen. And I didn't know what I was going to get myself into, but man, it was complete opposite, man. It was just, it was amazing out there. I got down there and I got a sponsor my first week. You know, they, they told me to get a sponsor, so I got a sponsor and started working the steps. You know, I got a little bit of, uh, you know, 30 days sober, you know, your, your mind starts clearing and in your head starts, you know, getting a little bit more, uh, you know, clear, I guess. Yeah. You know, you start working steps and it, everything just changed for me. You know, I, I don't know what kept me in. I think the difference between when I was 18 and had to go to the DUI classes and, and go to the AA meetings, like after I was done with that, I would go out and drink, you know, every, all the information that I retained, like it would just drink it away. I didn't have a chance to do that here. I got through my first weekend, which was like, I never thought it would be imaginable to, to go a weekend without drinking. I got through my first weekend and that was like a little bit of hope, you know, that was a little spark for me. And then it was February, <clears throat> I made it 30 days and it was February and I, so I went another 30 days at the Sober Living and uh, uh, Super Bowl Sunday, you know, that's, that was like my biggest day to get fucked up on Super Bowl Sunday. And I, and I went through that sober. And it was awesome, man. My sponsor was a couple of years older than me. He had three years. You know, he showed me the way. You know, we hung out with sober people, did sober things, and uh, I fell in love with it. You know, reading the book and started working the steps, and, and you know, I come to find out that I, you know, I have an obsession of the mind that when I'm not drinking, when I'm not using, you know, all I do is is obsess about it and and want it more. And then once I take it, once I drink it. I have an allergy that kicks in that I can't stop once I start. You know, it talks about that in the doctor's opinion. You know, all this stuff to me was all new and, you know, God opened the door for me. It gave me a little bit of willingness. You know, I took it. I'm 23 years old and, you know, I'm still learning. I have a lot of life left ahead of me and there's, there's life lessons and there's things that I'm going to learn the hard way. There's things I'm going to, you know, learn the easy way and there's things I'm going to help other people figure out. And, you know, that's all exciting for me. I guess I got a Harley in December of 19, and it was kind of a joke because me and my buddy were just kind of fucking around saying, oh, we should get Harleys. And like nine months later, I was like, all right, let's do it. And he's like, what? And I was like, yeah, let's get Harleys. And he's like, all right. So like three months later, we got our Harleys, and uh, I was at the Corona Serenity Club, and I saw the messengers over there, and they told me I'd look good in black and orange. <laughs> you know, I, I came over to one of their events, and started hanging around and you know it was it was definitely something I wanted to be a part of so I started prospecting you know I got through my prospecting and you know now I'm a member of the messengers recovery and I'm blessed today uh, life is life is life today you know there's there's things that I can't control there's things that happen that that just happen and I know that no matter what today I don't drink or use over it you know I have outlets I have people I can call the program has given me so many tools to use that I would just drink over or, or, or use all that shit away. You know, I get to grow up in, in recovery. I get to grow up in sobriety today. You know, there's, there's just, I'm a, I'm a real alcoholic. You know, I, I'm seldom mildly intoxicated. I'm always more or less insanely drunk. And for me, I need recovery. For me, I need program. I need AA. I need meetings. I need sponsorship. I don't, I don't have to do this shit today. I get to do it, and that's something for me that uh, is, a, is a complete 180 from my life, how it was. If you guys are new or newly being renewed, you know, just 
you guys listening on this podcast, you know, just just don't give up before the miracle happens. You know, there's there's so much good that comes out of a sober life that we wouldn't even dream about. You know, I heard in a meeting once that I believe in God, I believe God is good, and I believe God wants good for me. As, as long as I stay sober, those good things will come, you know. All you need is a little bit of, a little bit of willingness, and, and, you know, it's just, for me, it's it's been you know, honest, open-minded, and willing, and try to keep my head up, try to keep my feet moving. You know, I show up to work today. I don't drive drunk today. I don't fucking come to you today, and I'm, I'm a good employee, and I like to think I'm a good brother, and, and you know, somebody that, being a service, you know, and, and that's the key is to be a service. You know, the more you're a service, the more you're out of your head, the more you focus on someone else, the less you are on yourself and the less uh, tendencies you, you get to, or you think to get stuck in there, in my experience anyway. So that's all I really got. My name's Hollywood, I'm an alcoholic. Thank you. My name's Junkyard. I'm a addict, alcohol, crazy person, whatever you want to call it. Yeah, it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter what you call, what's wrong with me, but I, I have this something inside my head that tells me that I need to poison myself to feel better. You know, I, I, I grew up on a wrecking yard, helped my grandfather sweep the place and everything when I was a little kid. I remember I remember being like five years old when the the steel mill shut down. My dad lost his job. And like, you know, my parents having to talk to me about, you know, how like life is gonna change, you know what I mean? Like, you know, we don't gonna have the money for stuff anymore and feeling like, you know, like five years old, feeling like, you know, I got to step up in that. And I, that's when I started helping around in my grandfather's business and that and started buying my own toys and everything because, you know, my parents didn't have money at that point. I go back that far because I really think that I was uh, born an addict. I remember seeing on the news about how they were, uh, someone was putting some chemicals on stamps or whatever and it was like tripping people out or whatever. From that point on, I asked my grandfather if I could lick all the stamps to put on the envelopes to mail for the business. You know what I mean? Seven years old. You know, you know my, my parents worked hard through all that time. My, my, really, my grandparents raised me. I'd, I'd get dropped off at my grandma's in the morning, and then uh, by lunchtime I'd walk with her next door to the business and help my grandfather for the rest of the day. And it was like that, I mean, up until, like, I mean, even, like, in middle school and that, you know, up until... I think when I was 14, my grandmother was diagnosed with lung cancer. Out of all my family, my, my grandmother was the only one that, that would drink. She was the one that had the, you know, the medicine in her Coke, and everyone drove her around. And But she was the sweetest woman, cared, you know. But um, I remember she got breast cancer. I mean, not breast cancer, lung cancer. Like, she was doing the chemo and everything, and, like, it, it had shrunk down from the size of an orange to the size of a pea. And I remember feeling like, you know, there's hope, you know what I mean? Like, I, I felt like everything was, you know, I mean, that's, you know, wonderful news. And then, I mean, literally a few days later, she got um, uh, pneumonia. And she didn't, she didn't make it through that. And that was, I remember my grandmother was very superstitious. It really freaked her out that I was born in January because, like, all of her family died in January. It was just a few days after my birthday, my 15th birthday, that she, uh, she passed away. I, I didn't deal with it very well. You know, at the time I had long hair, I cut my hair, I got a suit, all kinds of stuff for the funeral. And my, my, my other grandmother, my, my father's side, as I'm, I'm there standing next to the, the coffin weeping, she turns to my mom and asks me, who is that man over there weeping? 
And she's like, that's your grandson, you know? I remember I was just, I was really depressed over everything and going through, you know, my freshman year of high school, and I didn't want to deal with any of it. I remember thinking of ways to, uh, to commit suicide, and nothing really sounded appealing. You know, I was already in, in like, you know, a band and all that stuff, and I played bass, and I'm like, you know, I came up with this great idea to just party like a rock star. And I, I know my, my parents didn't drink, but I, from an early age, I remembered that there was one Christmas that someone had given them a bottle of Smirnoff, and that they, I knew exactly where they had stuffed it, up underneath the, the sink, Oh, with all the other chemicals, and I knew that they would never miss it because they did like it, it had been there for probably seven years or so, not touched. And I knew that that hard alcohol like that would not go bad. So I went and I stole that 750 milliliter bottle of Smirnoff, and I took my first drink. No one forced me. No one, you know, coerced me or anything else. It burned like hell. Like, horribly. Like, I don't know, like, like if you're just rub, rubbing alcohol on my skin, it turns red. Like, you know. So I drank another one. Because the first one was so horrible, you know, the second one's got to be better, right? I don't remember where, if it was the third one or what, but I remember feeling like this is the way I want to feel for the rest of my life. All of my insecurities, all of this... The ickiness that I had inside me that I felt about myself melted away. And for that moment, I thought that I had become perfect. I spent the next 11 years chasing that. You know, um, amazingly, for, for quite a while, some time, I, I, I made it work. Most of the time, I had a really good time. I mean... There, there were times where you know the company was paying me for to go to, to go to the California Speedway, sit in a, in a suite with a full open bar, and I didn't, and everything was was just comped by the company. I, I really don't know how I made it work for so long, but there came a point. There came a point where it didn't anymore. I remember ending up in it, it was pretty much after my first drug charge. And the, the you know the, that was when when the company realized you know I, I was gone for a week I was in jail for you know whatever that that put me under a light of you know looking at what I'm doing it didn't matter what happened from that point I remember trying switching companies trying doing all kinds of other stuff different but keep doing what I was doing and it still didn't work. I, I tried making up different rules about, you know, only doing this or that, and nothing nothing worked anymore. One company I ended up, uh, I, I fell asleep while test driving a, a customer's vehicle and rear-ended in another car. I remember going to my first NA meeting. I had gotten my first drug charge. I was in jail for about a week before I finally was able to go to video court and plead guilty and they gave me PC-1000 and my mom picked me up from jail and took me to work which I thought was bullshit because I didn't want to go to work I wanted to at least go home for a little bit but I go to work after work 
the assistant manager at the, the shop I worked at told me I needed to come with him. I'm like, like what, what do you mean I need to come with you? He's like, I want you to come to this meeting with me. And he took me over here off of Arlington to this place called Muggsy's. It's, uh, Muggsy's was a, uh, a coffee shop. Then there was an NA meeting that was held outside the coffee shop on Thursdays at, I believe, 7.30. And I remember sitting there thinking, this is bullshit. All these people are sharing this blah, blah, blah. I got clean and my life got good. They don't know how I am. I just need to get through this stupid program and then go back doing what I was doing. That's all I got out of that meeting. I got out of there. It was like, you know, fuck this shit, not ever coming back. I did the PC-1000 program. I didn't drink or do anything because I knew if I drank, then I'd start using other stuff. And if I started using other stuff, then it's, you know, I'm, you know, all over the place. So once I got through that program, I went back to doing what I was doing. As quickly as everything went downhill from that point, it, it was unimaginable to me at, at that point. That was when I, I, you know, after that, starting again after that six months, like no longer could hold down a job. Pretty much after that, the next two years of my life, I spent just weighing sacks. Because that's about all I could could do. And in that two years, I um, uh, was in and out of jail several times. I didn't enjoy it anymore. You know, there was no more... No more open bar in a suite. There was no more sitting ringside at the pond. There was no more, you know, driving the boss's Ferrari around. There was no more. There was just sitting in a corner with a bunch of tweakers weighing dope. That was it. And I was sick of it. I didn't, I didn't want to do that anymore. But at the same time, I didn't, like, you know, if I, if I didn't smoke dope, I didn't get up in the morning. If I didn't. If I didn't, you know, weigh sacks and that, I didn't get money. I didn't do anything. I remember the last time I, uh, a smoker drank. I woke up in the morning of uh, May 10th, 2005. I was out of dope the day before and I bought a case of beer. And the last thing I remember was I couldn't get any more beer because it was after 2 o'clock in the morning and I fell asleep in the Lazy Boy. The morning I wake up and I had a hole in the front door and I see these green pants walk by through the hole. And I look like sheriff pants, like, you know? And I look on the video camera and there's all these squad cars parked outside. And I look on the camera in the backyard and there's a car hauler full of aluminum wheels. And nobody else is at my house anymore. I had, there was even, a, I had people living in the backyard in a motor, motor home. I had, I had the whole freaking tweaker compound going on at that point. And I'm like, fuck. I had like the scale and the baggies or whatever. And I go to the door and I, go, I tell the chef, I'm like, what the fuck do you want? He's like, you need to, I'm like, what are you talking, like, why are you on my property? They, they were looking, uh, some, what, somebody that was staying in the backyard jumped the wall, whatever, stole a bunch of aluminum, and I, uh, I ended up getting uh, charged with two felony counts of possession of stolen property and, uh, and one felony count of manufacturing dangerous weapons. You know, the police took me and bullshitted me, saying, oh, you know, you're probably getting in trouble because, you know, you didn't know anything, and then they, then they charged me with everything. 
you know, they um uh, leave my place unlocked, wouldn't allow me to secure anything, and ended up losing everything that I ever had, pretty much. One of the worst things that was lost at the time was, um, at the time, my my girlfriend was in prison, and her daughter was staying with me. It was 18 months old. She was being bounced between me and her biological father. Uh, was a scouting also, and nobody knew where she was at. I remember getting off the phone with my mom, and my mom asked me where where she's at, and I, I told her, I don't know. I mean, she was with whoever, and they couldn't find him. I remember feeling this emptiness inside me. That I just I remember hanging up the phone, crying in jail, thinking, God, I can't do this any longer. They they found her a couple of days later with the the babysitter. And the day after hanging up that phone and saying, God, I can't do this anymore, the sheriffs came, told me to roll my stuff up, and they're sending me to uh, Glen Helen. And I go to Glen Helen. One of the, the wood rep kept getting me, trying to talk to me a little bit, and he kept trying to go, get, to, get, him, get me to go to these meetings that they were having. And I'm like, no, nah, I, don't, I don't need to get to do that. Finally, um, uh, one day, I'm sitting on my bunk, I'm watching Spanish soap operas, so it's Paisa Day. The wood rep comes up to me and he goes, hey, can I, can I leave my book on your bunk while I take a shower? And I'm like, that, that was kind of weird, but I was like, you know, whatever, you know what I mean? Leave your book up here, no one's going to mess with it. And he set his, his book up there, I thought it was a Bible, it's blue like all the other Bibles and everything else, whatever. And I'm looking at it, and it's got this, an A symbol on the on the cover, so I pick it up and I start reading it. And he didn't get that book back for about a about a week, and I remember getting just a few chapters into that book, and and feeling hope, and feeling like this is what I need to do with the rest of my life. I asked him, "Hey, when's the next time you're having a, a meeting back there in that that little room that I'm?" Uh, I think it was Deputy Hastings was letting us uh, go back there and do meetings unsupervised and all kinds of other stuff. I I sat there and I listened, and there were quite a few guys in the in at the meeting that that had uh that had had clean time before, and, and shared about how they they gave it up. Either they weren't paying attention to the recovery, they were chasing girls, and or and one guy was. You know, when he was in recovery before, he really wasn't doing anything other than looking for more customers, whatever. So what I learned was when you go out in the meetings in the real world and that not everybody in the meetings is there to look for recovery. But there is recovery there to be found. I was looking at like two to four years and I was thinking if I got lucky, I'd get a program. You know what I mean? I, the whole time I was complaining, they never had a warrant to search my property. They were on my property without a warrant. And they ended up dropping everything. Even my warrant, like I had a warrant for a failure to appear, possession of paraphernalia. And they ended up even dropping that and dropped everything down to disturbing the peace. And they didn't give me a program. And it was just a, some informal probation and a $600 fine and they kicked me loose. And I felt scared. I was scared because I didn't want to go back to what I was doing before. I was, 
I was really hoping to get a program or something, and I didn't. I didn't. I, I got you know. I got off really easy on. I mean, considering everything that I was doing, I was off really easy. But I was scared. But I remembered that at Thursday, over in Arlington at Muggsy's, at 7:30, there was a group of people that said that they had clean time. And they had been doing this program that was in the, this book that I read. I showed up, and I was nervous as hell. And thank God you could, could smoke at the meeting outside at that point. I think I smoked about four or five cigarettes just during the meeting because, I, I, you know, the only time I had ever been around people when I wasn't drunk or high was either in jail or out with, like, my family somewhere, you know what I mean? Like where I have to be, pretend that I'm normal or something. And I sat there and I listened and I kept coming back. And they, they talked about this uh, Unity Day event. In the, in the book, it's just going to events and everything else. And I show up early to Unity Day and I've never seen anything like it, right? There's this big group, they're setting all this stuff up. There's this guy sitting behind a table with this goofy hat on and he's got this sheet with all these names or something written on it right and i'm like looking at this thing reading wonder what the fuck this sheet is and this guy looks at me and goes what the fuck do you want it was the first lie i said in uh in recovery i looked him dead in the eyes and i you know like got all defensive I was like nothing and i walked out i lied to him i lied to that man the truth is, I wanted another day clean. I wanted what they had. I wanted to be able to feel good in a room with people just because I'm there, you know? Like, I didn't feel comfortable going there, and I felt even worse. And I went outside, and I sat down on the little half wall outside the, the church. I'm sitting there thinking, this is fucked up. You know, there's nowhere else I want to go. I Like, I don't want to go anywhere else, and I don't really want to be here right now anymore. And this other guy comes up to me, this old uh, Native American guy. And he, he walks up to me and goes, hey, I recognize you from the meetings. And, uh, and he goes, he asked me, do you have a sponsor yet? And I, and I said, no. And he goes... Well, let me be your temporary sponsor until you find one. Now I'm feeling great. You know, I went, you know, now I, I, I at this point, I had about um, 60 days, 30 days, 60 days clean, 30 days was incarcerated, 30 days, you know, going to actual meetings in that. But now I feel like great. Like it, within five minutes, I go from this really low to this really like, you know, oh, I got a sponsor now, you know, like, and I, so I, I stay for the whole event. They have this crazy lady speaking and and I stay for the dance and then the, the you know people are dancing the band's going and then the guy who's asked to be my sponsor gets up on stage and starts playing harmonica and like I'm like like this is you know cool as hell you know what I mean you know I stayed I stayed and I followed and very simply followed the suggestions you know what I mean even though I wasn't comfortable, I kept coming back until I, you know, started feeling more comfortable. You know, it's true what they say, you know, don't leave until the miracle happens. 
We're addicts, alcoholics, whatever the fuck we are. We want instant gratification. We want, we want to feel it now. We want, you know, the miracle's not happening. It's not working. It didn't, you know, be patient. It's not a virtue we, that we were born with. It's something we have to practice. Practice our patience is what got me to that point. When, I remember when I came in here, I didn't, I didn't want anything other than to give up my burnt lips and my lighter callus. I wanted to wake up and not have to like do something or wake up and figure out where the hell I was. I just wanted to, to wake up and go through my day somewhat normal. You know, this program has taught me so much more about myself, relationships, lives, spirituality, so much more than I ever bargained for. There is no way to, uh, to really express it. Going through the suggestions of, uh, you know, getting a sponsor and working steps. And, I mean, really when, step one was really when, when I was in jail, I hung up that phone. I became willing. I, I became willing to accept that what I was doing was wrong, the way I was thinking was wrong. Literally, I mean, absolutely everything I knew was wrong and that I needed to find something different. That is really where, where I, I went through step one. When I hung up the phone and I asked God, when I told God, I can't do this anymore. I can't. I was asking for help. You know, I can't, can, can you help me? You know, really one, two, and three went by right there. Now, step three is one that I, I struggle with regularly on not taking back my own will. That is one of the steps that I, I have to work on daily. A fourth step, taking an inventory, is part of that too, taking an inventory of what I've you know, fucked up and what's my responsibility and everything else. Take, doing a fourth step and going over with my sponsor and everything else, that taught me what's my business. You know, how much of my emotions am I putting out there that aren't even any of my business that I need to worry about anyway? That helped me draw a line of where my business ends and where somebody else's is none of mine. <laughs> and go, then being able to go on and repair relationships, not only with myself, but with family members and society at large, I, I've been able to, to grow as a human being and I have been able to, to reach out and help others. If this program wasn't here to guide me from that sucked up little kid in jail to, to the person I am today, I, I, I don't know how it would happen. You know, through, through this journey, I have been able to build relationships with, with others as close as family members. I remember, I remember when I, I joined, one of the first commitments I made in, uh, in recovery was joining a two-year apprenticeship in the laborers' union. Most of my life, I've, I've lived and fucked up in a shop. I took a step outside to learn something else. You know, a whole new group of people, just, you know, one of the suggestions is doing something different, and it's, you know, 
to me that was you know something different it was one less thing to worry about i joined this apprenticeship i didn't have to worry about looking for a job i just focus on my recovery and go do whatever they tell me and that was it and that's what i i did that for a couple years i remember i remember one of the jobs they sent me to i'm sitting i'm going up on the uh, highway 18 to go work up in Crestline. And there's these two bikes coming up next to me. And it was the first time I saw her cut. I see the, the messengers that are recovering. I see the pyramid. And I'm like, I knew exactly what it meant. So in, when I was in jail, I read that book cover to cover. And it talks about the pyramid of freedom. It talks about the sides of the pyramid, the you know, God, unity, and and everything, that the greater our circle, the higher our freedom goes. And I remember thinking that that's, that was beautiful, you know what I mean? I remember the the first time I, I met a messenger, I was running into at the San Marino Mall, ran into Taz. And I told him that, you know, that I had been saving up for a bike, and he said, just keep with it, it'll happen. And I did. You know, just like everything, you just keep at it. It's like, you know, there's a saying that I hear about how do you eat an elephant? One bite at a time, you know? It's just one step at a time. It's not, it's just part of that patience. It's part of that, you know, life isn't about instant gratification the way we would like it. It is about small achievements built over time. You know, today, I, I can't believe I'm saying this, but I have, I have too many motorcycles at my house. Like... I have, yeah, I have, I have two sportsters, a soft tail, a road king, and, and then the, uh, my Dyna that I, I rode here. And it's like, I need to do something. I've accumulated too much shit again. Yeah, my name's James, and I'm an addict. I definitely have Cadillac problems. <laughs> that was it for tonight from the Messengers of Recovery, Riverside. Make sure you tune in next week.